Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter Espresso, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thankful for all you're doing in our lives, and we recognize your hand, and we humbly uh, seek you and need you. We pray for our volunteers and uh, people who support the show throughout the world and who are tuning in now and watching the archives. Grateful for all the ministries that are going on throughout this world to reach people with truth, to uh, encourage people in the faith, and to uh, unearth uh, lies that so easily beset us. Be with us tonight, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an important point, I think, to people who are former LDS, who have come out of the Mormon faith. A lot of you, it used to be me, can't let go of the Mormon church in your hearts, not because you love it, but because you hate it. And uh, this is just another way that the institution continues to harm us, is when we let it remain in us and continue to churn us up. And I mention this because this is uh, the weekend, past weekend of General Conference. And if you lived in this state, you would hear people who were once LDS talking about general conference, how it gets under their skin, how they'll sneak a watch, how they get so frustrated. Every six months, the church holds a semi-annual general conference. And I know people who have long abandoned the faith who still watch that clap trap, man. So I've never watched it since uh, we started ministry here. I've never tuned into it. Uh, you know what it's like? It's like a man has a wife and 30 years ago the wife goes out on him and the man discovers her unfaithfulness by hiring a private detective to take pictures of her with her lover and then every six months for the past 30 years the man gets the pictures out and he looks at them and he gets filled with anger and hatred all over again 30 years have passed since he was involved with the woman and yet he still, every six months, pulls the pictures out, looks at them, and gets inflamed in his heart by the deception that he sees right in front of him. So, you know, the, the solution to this, and this is hard, is forgiveness. He's got he's to forgive her. He's got to let her go and move on. And so it is with the, the LDS church. Forget it. Let the thing go. Uh, it's the only way to really be free and to really live. Now, uh, in some ways, uh, my advice, it's normal to be angry and it's normal to be disillusioned initially. And that, that disillusionment time, that, that, it's very normal to react and get consumed by the deception. We all have to go through the stages of grief. And that might take some people one year, five years, maybe 10 years at the most. But when you meet people who have left decades ago and they are still venomous, filled with venom toward it, that church is still puppeteering your heart. It's still controlling you. And so if you can somehow forgive it, you can still, you can still address the truth of things, but if you can forgive it as a, as a, as a terrible thing that it is as an institution and let Jesus come in and heal your heart, and begin to live by faith and love, then it's, it's, it's going to free you up is the whole point. All right. Last week, right here on the air, I think we 
were abundantly graced by a picture of what I've been trying to explain is true Christianity. But this was a picture, living picture given to us by our guest. Some of you may disagree, but from what your texts and, and emails and phone calls have said to me, most of you who like the show have agreed. Uh, see, right here we had on the stage a man in our presence named uh, Joey Scoma. And he's a former Latter-day Saint homosexual uh, who entertains the idea that he's the reincarnated Joseph Smith. And he certainly has different views and a different way. I mean, he was sitting here with a Duty to God award around his neck wearing a robe. And, and, but as we talk to him, we see he has no Ph.D. in philosophy or theology but he loves Jesus. He loves and seeks truth. There was no doctrinal positioning between Joey and I. I don't know if Joey's a Trinitarian or an or a eternal punishment guy or a, or a futurist, but he's a brother, period. And we were able to see that right here on the stage, while Joey and I differ in different things, Joey likes to do mushrooms. I don't do mushrooms, but he's my brother because we agree on the fact that Jesus is the Lord. And Joey can wear robes, and I can wear fugly shirts, and, 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 but he's a brother. And so if we can bring that to the church, and we can sit down, and people can be of every different type and walk, and yet we are all somehow saying, we look to God, and we see that he loved us so much, he sent his son. If we can get those things down... Everything else will work itself out. And it's up to God to, let, to figure out the differences and how he's going to work with us. And it was a living example right here on the show. And I've had a lot of response from people. Uh, Mark, uh, he wrote and he said, thank you. Uh, we had a number of people who wrote and were so impressed with Warren Puckett of Breaking Bread and the comments that he had to share. And uh, definitely full of the spirit, full of love. And uh, uh, Robert said, uh, witnessing, after listening to Warren's comments on the issue of homosexuality, I agree with him 100%. When he said, bring your gay self to the table, I understood the language that he was talking about. And uh, he says, anyway, just agreeing with your message to all of us sinners saved by grace. Thank you for your influence and passion to reach out to those who will listen. And that was on Warren's behalf. Another example of somebody else, and Warren and I don't see eye to eye on uh, things, but we're willing to be together in the faith to reach out. And, and so it was just a great thing. We did get one from Farron. He wrote, I am forcing myself to watch this episode in full due to the fact this sermon began with talk of homosexuality and how it is to blame for a large number of young people in Utah committing suicide. Listen to yourselves, gentlemen. Homosexuality is an abomination according to our Bible. In the Old and New Testaments, faggotry, that's the word this person used, is filthiness according to our Father named Yahweh God. So I'm going to stop that there. Delaney, come back off that graphic. And I just want to talk about that first position. Listen, almost everything that has to do with human nature is an abomination to God. And so faggotry included, and Sean McCranetry included, it's all an abomination to God. 
And he loved us so much, he sent his son. And his son, 2,000 years ago, he took care of sin. And therefore, the sin is gone because his shed blood, his shed blood isn't like in a container and then it is poured out when someone says, I need my sin to be covered. His blood was shed and covered all sin. That's how powerful his blood is. And so it was taken care of then. So homosexuality, while we can cite chapter and verse on how wrong it is, we can cite how wrong it is looking upon a woman with lust in our heart is. That I become an adulterer merely by that. So according to my calculations, since Monday, and it's now Tuesday, I have committed adultery 738 times. You see? So we can point out the, the faggotry and we can say, they are an abomination, but you know what? I'm a walking abomination in my flesh. And so do we walk by our flesh or do we walk by the Spirit? Do we look to Lord Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the one who came and did what we could not do, and we walk by faith in Him? That's what the message is, what we're all talking about. And so that's why we stay away from comments like this, because it's off the mark. We're missing the mark about why Jesus came, you see? So, and listen... Uh, Farron here, he does in the email kindly, and he or she, I can't tell, I think, but uh, he or she does soften up and said that she does see a light in, uh, she didn't see a light in him, and she did notice good things in him, as Warren and, and I talked about it, but she just doesn't agree with his sexuality choice. You know, if we could probably take a film of heterosexual sexuality choices in the bedroom, we would be appalled, you know? And a lot of the things heterosexuals do with each other is an abomination to God if you look at it. I mean, so let's just calm down and get back to the cross, what Jesus did, and let the Spirit work through me and Joseph and everybody else and trust that the Lord has saved us and move forward. Uh, got this from Whitney. Two years ago, my best friend took his own life. Sean, your show has changed my life. I was raised LDS and believed it. At that time, I thought uh, I was mostly inactive. I really struggled with my friend's death and had a ton of questions about afterlife. I decided that I needed to get my butt in gear and start going back to church so I could be sure to be with him one day. My biggest goal was to, though, was to make sure I wasn't going to just go through the motions. I wanted to be all in when it came to the LDS Church. I found this quote by Joseph Fielding Smith, quote, Mormonism, as it is called, must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. He was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed and commissioned, or he is one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground, end quote. Uh, the writer says, I took this quote to heart and started studying the life and times of Joseph Smith. I truly thought this would be my journey back into the church as a full active member. However, once I started my research, I, of course, found out things about Smith and the early church I had never heard before. I started watching videos on YouTube, came across a few of your videos. At first, I was upset at the things you were saying. They had to be lies. But the more I researched what you were saying, the more truth I found in your words. The LDS Church was, is putting out essays showing that what you were saying was the truth. 
I was completely shocked and my world started to crumble. I became obsessed with searching for the truth. I read tons of books, read blogs, church manuals, everything I could get my hands on. After I came to the conclusion that the church wasn't really true, I struggled believing in anything. This is so common. And I wanted to believe in God, though, so I searched. And through his words and watching your show, I was able to come to believe that God does exist and he is bigger than the Mormon God could ever be. Thanks for the show. I know it has truly done a lot for us in this destructive church. That end, end line is really good, this destructive church. Ask yourself, no matter what church you're in, you know, we talk about the Mormons a lot here, but is your church destructive to you? And, and you can really kind of go through and do a mental test and see if you are growing, if you are feeling closer to God, if you are feeling the spirit move you to want to improve in your life, or if you are being manipulated and burdened and challenged, constantly trying to measure up, things like that, destructive or uh, constructive. Got an email from Sam. It's interesting. Uh, hey, I've been born in the church and have a long line of members flowing from every branch of my lineage. I think I'm a fifth generation Mormon on either side. For the past year, I've been conflicted with the conflicting church history and realize that Joe Smith very well could have been a false prophet, but I've been strung up on the testimony of my grandparents. My question is this, if the church isn't true, then how could certain miracles be possible? And this comes up quite a bit. Uh, people say, you know, I received this uh, priesthood blessing and I was healed. And so what's going on there? If, if we're being healed by the priesthood, then certainly the church must be true. He says, for example, my grandfather gave a priesthood blessing to my grandma while she was in the hospital using blessed olive oil. He and others in my family prayed that my grandma would regain circulation in her leg. Lo and behold, 10 minutes, the white limb deemed medically lost was found to have some pink returned to it. Nurses were stunned. It was a miracle in every sense of the word. Uh, so I just want to say at this point, one, God blesses all people. And God would hear the prayer of your grandfather and sincere petition to him. And, and the leg, if the leg by your grandma was healed, it was healed by God. The problem is the, even your grandfather is assigning the healing to a priesthood. And the Bible is really clear that that priesthood is a fabrication. Uh, Grant Palmer's book, Insider's View of Mormon Origins, proves that priesthood restoration was false. It was anachronistically totally out of sorts. There was no uh, 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 restoration of a Melchizedek priesthood in the annals of church history. Palmer proves it. So the priesthood has nothing to do with grandma's leg turning pink. It's God who turned her uh, leg pink and full of blood. And if you, and if you start looking and thanking a priesthood, that's part of the problem with the church is it is using itself as an intermediary between when we have direct access to God to do the healings and blessings that he does upon us. He goes on and he concludes with another story. I'm not going to cover that story, but in the end, it is rife. I probably should. Uh, I think I'm going to. He says, I know this negates critical analysis. And I want you to just use your ears to hear this story because it goes such a long way to describe what happens within the Mormon church and other churches. Uh,
someone can hear me. I, I want to say that just right now we're saying the boy was born with a bunch of health problems. But I'm sure that, the, the, that they were praying for the mother when the baby was in utero for a healthy child. I'm sure that it's possible that the bishop, uh, now a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, blessed his wife with the priesthood that the child would be healthy and she would be whole. So right now we have a conundrum, you know. What, so I'll stop there. Uh, it was unclear if the boy would live. After weeks or months of an emotional roller coaster ride in and out of hospitals, the boy still lived. The bishop asked his friend, my grandpa, if he would fast and pray for him. And uh, I'm going off the top of my head, so I don't remember exact details. He says, my grandpa agrees and goes on a three days without food or water. So now we are tying the healing of him to the grandpa. My grandpa fasted three days and three, not praying to God, but my grandpa fasted three days, no food or water. On the third day, my grandpa was suddenly caught in a vision. In this vision, he saw his bishop and friends standing at the general conference pulpit. And my grandpa heard the words in the vision that said the boy would be known throughout the world for his priesthood. Now, these vagaries are just, well, hang with me. My grandpa told only his wife about this vision. Years later, the medically hurt boy grew up despite severe financial hardship to help him stay alive. He soon became a teacher in the priesthood, the only one as I can recall. I don't know what that means. But he made it his duty to bring others into the fold, per se, and soon filled his teacher's quorum with converts. This story made it around, and the church got wind of it, and the story made it into general conference. My friend, uh, the friend of my grandpa came to him and told my grandpa, that boy was known throughout the world for his priesthood. I conclude with this, how can my grandfather have a vision involving the priesthood if supposedly it doesn't exist. I'm not going to go in and articulate it. I think if you read between the lines, listen to the story, look at all the things that are said there, there's answers to that. But bottom line answer really is, you know, God is the one who heals. God is the one who uses. And if the boy was known for his priesthood, the boy was known for something false. And that's certainly a shame. Let's go to the board of direction, which I'm not going to get up and use. We're just going to call it the board of direction. I am personally convinced that those who build for themselves empires here on earth on foundations of sand have received their rewards here. Um, it's not that we can't have savings and a good retirement and things like that. I'm talking about people whose heart is set on the things of this world. And uh, I have this belief that there will be a reversal of fortune. Uh, and I base this off Christian teachings uh, that there will be a reversal of fortune in the afterlife. Now, many Christians teach that uh, there's not just going to be a reversal of fortune, but people are going to burn forever in hell and they're going to suffer in their flesh. And I don't see the Bible teaching that. Uh, but what I do see the Bible teaching is definitely the principles of reversals of fortune. Let me establish some quick facts. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus says to some Pharisees, they that which justify yourselves, you are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Remember, it's the heart. 
For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The things that men and women, the world hold up as highly esteemed, God sees them as an abomination. So what do men highly esteem? Well, we highly esteem materialism and fame and power and control. And so John put it this way in a very familiar verse, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. Is not of the Father, but is of this world, right? So taking these principles, could it be that the misery in the afterlife part will be felt by those who built their mansions of mud on foundations of sand rather than focusing on things of the Spirit. Such mansions have no place in the kingdom of God because they're an abomination to Him. Here they're held up as being great, but to Him they're nothing. I suggest there's going to be a tangible reversal of fortune in the lives of the inhabitants of the earth for those who dwelled in luxury, feeding the flesh, will live in eternal spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty, understand. And they'll suffer from spiritual hunger. Uh, and those who lived a life after the Spirit here, and probably in material poverty as a result, in part, will abide in heavenly mansions of light and fire and glory forever. Now, this supposition is just not my opinion. Let me turn to Mark 10, 31. Jesus said, but many, many, not all, that are first shall be last, and the last first. He's talking about a reversal of fortune there. He's talking about in that kingdom. Speaking of the principle of reversal of fortune, Luke says, And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. See the reversal? He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Reversal of fortune. The poor become rich, the rich become poor. The last become first, the first become last. It's all through it. Luke 6, 24, 25, Jesus said, Woe unto you that are rich. It's just, all it is is being rich. That's all he says. He doesn't say, woe unto you who are rich and worship money. All he says is, woe unto you that are rich. For you have received your reward, your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, you shall hunger, he says. Woe unto you that laugh now, you shall weep and mourn. Now we're not talk, we're talking spiritually here. We're not talking about people who have been blessed with abundance and use it uh, wisely. We're talking about people who live for this world, live for the things of the flesh, do not care about the things of the spirit. There is, it's one of the dogmas I stand on, going to be a reversal of fortune. Uh, I have long been really curious over the attitudes of the rich and famous toward God, uh, toward Jesus. I'm stunned when I watch, I binge on some Netflix shows with my wife. I'm stunned at the representations of Buddha and, and all through Hollywood and the iconography of Buddha. Never do you see a picture of Jesus, ever. I wonder why this rock star or that movie star or this business mogul don't ever seem, except for some, to be focused on him and sharing him. 
So why is it so, so, rare, so rare among these esteemed people of this earth? Uh, I think we know why it's rare, and um, we understand the biblical principle of reversal of fortune. Of course, the grand example of afterlife reversal of fortune comes in the parable, which I think was a true story, of Lazarus and the rich man. The parable is interesting because Jesus describes Lazarus in no more terms. He didn't say he was a man of faith. He doesn't say he was a man of, of great wisdom. He just says he was poor, covered in sores, and ate from the crumbs of a rich man's house. And when he describes the rich man, all he says is he lived sumptuously every day. He doesn't say he was a wild man or an adulterer or a murderer. He just says he lived sumptuously. That's all. That's all. And nothing more is given to describe them. But it, from the mouth of Abraham, Jesus has Abraham say to the rich man after this life. But Abraham said to the rich man, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted and thou art tormented. That's a reversal of fortune. I'm convinced there's something to it. I don't know how it works, but it seems like if God is just, we walk around saying it's so unfair that that person doesn't have this or that person doesn't have that or that person has all this. There, I believe, will be a balancing. There will be a balancing, but it will be predicated on the heart and the heart's desires, not necessarily the actual physical manifestation because there are people who have nothing and are poor and they're rat bastards in their heart, you know. So it's not just that physical thing. It's where the heart is, uh, is centered. All right, let's go to If I Had Kids Today. If I had kids today, I still have kids today, but if I had little kids today, I would spend my time on Sundays or Saturdays or one day during the week taking them to different churches. I would take them to not just different Christian denominations. I'd take them to Buddhist temples. I'd take them to the mosque. I'd take them to every single religious thing around. And then afterward, I would make it a weekly thing where I would, after we went to that service, and I wouldn't kill them with it, I wouldn't make them sit through the whole thing, I'd let them get a taste of it or whatever, and then we would have an outing and we'd go to a restaurant and we would sit there and we would talk about the differences or the similarities of what we saw and what the Bible has to say, what we saw and what Jesus taught. That's how I would do the comparison and contrasting with my young kids. I wouldn't take them to a single place and say, this is our church, this is where you go, all oh, they're having a youth meeting tonight, you gotta go, and all that stuff. I wouldn't play church with them. I would, I would use all the churches out there as a way to, for them to present things, and then I would sit down with them in a place that they would look forward to going to afterward, you know, even if it's McDonald's or something, and then sit over the table and discuss with them. Well, did you notice this was said? What do you think Jesus said about that? I think in that way, you're, you're gonna be able to break through the tradition of church going while simultaneously enter into their minds and hearts the things of Jesus in a true sense. That's what I would do if I had kids today. And how about a minute from the word?
<laughs> All right. We have to study the Word of God in context, right? By now we know. Not just the 2020 rule of if you have a passage, 20 verses forward, 20 verses forward, 20 verses back. Not just the book. You have to look at the context of the book, who's talking and why. You have to look at the context of the Testament, new and old. And then you have to look at the context of the whole Bible. That's how you really understand what is being said. You can't just take one verse. But I want to speak to the principle of asking God for things. Because I want to show you something I discovered. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches his disciples at their request, hey, tell us how to pray. So from that, we get the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches them how to pray, sets the tone for what he says next. Then Jesus says at verse 5, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. This is an interesting parable. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me and I have nothing to set before him. In other words, I have somebody visiting and I don't have any food to give him. And he from within the house shall say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't rise and give this to you. In other words, you're bugging me. Come on, I'm in bed. My kids are asleep. Go away, right? Jesus says, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. His importunity is what, how the King James puts that word. That word means his shameless persistence. He won't go away and shut the heck up. So because of his importunity, the guy, he's, he won't get out of bed because he's his friend, but he will because he's bugging him and he's going to wake the kids. He will give him the bread. That makes sense when we think of it. The shameless persistence of the bread borrower causes the friend to get up and provide the bread for him. So Jesus has first taught them to pray, and then he teaches them this, this principle about importunity. And he, he gives this parable that endorses shameless persistence as a way for us to relate to God. That's really interesting, right? Is this correct? Do we have the shameful persistence toward God for bread is the question I, I have. Is it for the things we want here in this life? Unfortunately, many people read these examples and they apply them to talking to God about the things that we want here. And that God give us loads of, loaves of bread or loads of diamonds. And because of our importunity, please, 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 bugging him, bugging him, he will then bestow it upon us like Jesus does directly in the parable. But what is lost in Jesus' parables is they are there to teach us spiritual principles. They are not there to teach us methods and formulas on how to twist God's arm to give us the new uh, Mustang, right? So in the parable, the, friends at, the friend asks his sleeping friend to provide him with bread. The meeting is not to tell us to expect the same application, but to use the same principle when it comes to asking God for things. Now hang with me. What he is talking about is asking God for spiritual blessings. I'm going to prove this in a minute. And now many people read this and they say, we go to God and we say, give me the gas for my car, fill up my uh, refrigerator. I believe God takes care of us in those ways. But that is not how you would use this. Let me go on. After sharing this parable, Jesus goes on and says, I say to you, ready? Ask 
and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Referring back to the parable of the importunist friend asking for bread. For every one that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that to knocks it will be opened. And, and so Jesus brings it all home now, though, in the proper application, which is always ignored. This passage is used out of con- it used in its simple little way to show, do this, pester God, and he'll give it to you. That's the name it and claim it way. Verse 11, Jesus says, If a son shall ask bread of any of you, that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give the fish who asks for the fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? So Jesus is still in the parable of talking about a father on earth and his son asking his father on earth for physical things. Tangible things, eggs and, and, and bread and fish, right? Those are all examples of the material. He says, listen, if you then, okay, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give bread, money, fish, eggs? No. How much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask him. You see? You see the context? God is not in the business. He takes care of us. But a lot of people have gone hungry and a lot of people have not received the material. But they have received from the Father the Holy Spirit for those who ask, seek, and knock. Jesus clearly tells us that Those who apply the principle of asking importunity to the Father, the Father will, like any good Father here who bestows material things, the Father will bestow the Holy Spirit. And you see, when the Holy Spirit is bestowed upon you by the Father, there is no greater gift on earth. When you are in possession of that, you can can do anything in the material world. You can conquer and overcome almost anything if you have the Holy Spirit with you because the Holy Spirit is telling you how to survive and what to do. You see, but that's the context of the Scripture and not just using it as something. Today, these passages are awfully wrongly applied to everyday living, but the application Jesus gives is that just as we as fathers know how to give good gifts materially to our children here who ask for them, Heavenly Father knows for those who ask how to give the Holy Spirit. Try to remember that one. And with that, how about we get back to another hacking at the root principle. Let me take a quick drink. We have a couple principles left, and we're done with Chomsky. Before we can sit back and look at how they really do apply to the faith as a whole. In the past, we've talked about the following principles that are used by the few to govern the masses. Reduced democracy was one. Shape ideology was two. Redesign the economy was three. Shift the burden was four. Attack solidarity was five. What other principles are in place? According to Chomsky and relative to government, big business and major media outlets, which we are not talking about, the next principle is running the regulators or owning the regulators. Let me explain that. 
The application of this principle to the faith is a little bit difficult, but you'll see how it works if you hang with me and before we wrap it up. Talking about Chomsky's views and Requiem for an American Dream, he says that if you look at the course of regulation in the U.S., railroad financial regulation, you find that commonly regulation is put in place because it's initiated by the economic groups concerned uh, or it is supported by them. What he's saying there is that it is the railroads who say, we need to have a group that oversees us to regulate us. They come up with that idea. It's odd, isn't it? But those who are being regulated believe that those who are assigned to regulate them can be bought and owned and brought in-house. And therefore, they remain in control rather than having the government come and say, we're going to impose regulators. You come up with self-regulation and then you are able to control your own destiny. So according to him, the reason is because they know they can overtake, overrun the regulators. This is called regulatory capture in the business world, which might be defined as the business being regulated, actually owning or manipulating those who are regulating them. In some cases, it can get so mixed up, and we've seen this, that lobbyists and regulators over a financial institution actually serve as writing up the laws pertaining to the thing they're supposed to regulate. So Chomsky points out that this has been happening through history and it's a normal tendency when you look at the distribution of power. So one of the things uh, that expanded in the 1970s was lobbying, lobbying Washington. We've all heard about that. And the business world moved sharply toward lobbying in order to control regulators and legislation that would call their practices into play. So the business world was upset by a number of things going back to the 60s, and public welfare was one, and actions of guys like Richard Nixon was another. Richard Nixon? What did he do? Chomsky points out, it's not very well understood, but Nixon was the last New Deal president, and in the business world regarded his actions as class treachery. They couldn't stand the guy, even though he was a, a Republican. And in the Nixon administration, the country received under his hand, you may not have known this, uh, safety legislation like OSHA, um, uh, health regulation, and the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA was started and founded by Nixon, putting these regulators in place. Well, if business didn't like this, uh, the high taxes that came to try to fund these guys and the regulatory power that they were given. And so they began a coordinated effort to try and overcome them and take them into their own. And it was here that lobbying increased in, in Washington and deregulation began to occur. They began to deregulate rather than regulate business. And so we've pointed out there were no financial crashes in the 1950s and 60s uh, because the regulatory apparatus was in place because remnants of the New Deal were still in place. But this, when, when the regulatory apparatus began to get dismantled by the businesses who did not want to be controlled so that they can manipulate, 
we started having crises. The first, you may not remember this, I do, was the SNL crisis. And that's when savings and loans, SBIC uh, uh, insured savings and loans were going bankrupt. They were closing their doors. This had never happened before. It happened with the stock market, but that was for a completely different reason. But here it happened because of deregulation. And then we start to see the mortgage crisis that we saw in 1989, 89, 88, uh, 87. And then we saw the SNL, uh, I mean, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Enron, all because of deregulation, all because the standards that were set up were ignored, and so uh, the businesses took advantage and they all crashed. So, in the, here's, in the case of each of these fails, Enron, SNLs, Mortgage, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the government has bailed them all out, and which ostensibly means that individual taxpayers have bailed them all out. And we have borne the brunt of the burdens that the few have created by their greed for lust and power. Don't, I'm, I'm, I mean, I am not, I'm not pitching anything but what has happened. This is a reality. But get this, and this is really important. The standards for the common man, for me and you, the standards continue to be, you're under typical market practice. You have to obey market principles. In other words, you don't pay your debt, Sean McCraney. You are going to suffer enormously, and there'll be no government bailout for you. But the individual corporations, which have been given a soul by the law and become institutions, have been able to do what they want, and when they fail, they are given a huge bailout in the billions and trillions of dollars so that they can continue to thrive because they're too big to fail. You see, they're too big to fail. Us small guys, we can take it in the ear all day long because that is what the game is all about. And we bear the burden. Okay, so there is a bottom line to all this. There's one set of rules for the rich and the few. And there's an opposite set of rules for the common and the poor. Start to think about Jesus. Just start to think about who he was for and what he was about. He wouldn't have battled all this stuff, but just think about who he, what he was for and what he was about. Uh, this will always be when there's a narrow sector of society, whether it's in the faith or whether it's in business or, corp or, or government, that is really only interested in protecting its, what it has. This will always be the case. So application to the church today relative to regulating, running the regulators. It's not a straight across application. Hang with me and I think you'll get it and we'll wrap it up. Organized religion thrives in an environment of pseudo self-regulation. Pseudo self-regulation. Akin to how corporations own their own regulators. I say pseudo because regulation within the church, whether it's a super institutional group like Mormonism or Catholicism, or it's a single non-denom down the road who has a board of directors, the game of playing church reigns supreme. That is what is going on. It's to play church. And it's to keep that institution safe and thriving. And it's born on the backs of the individuals. In other words, 
regulator appearance as seen in elders boards and financial oversight committees and a bunch of deacons who are there are, listen, always in-house in church. They're always in-house. The Mormon church owns their self-regulators. The Catholic church owns those who police them. And so there is always under the auspices of Christian peace the need for them to play and comply and to support the institution and not whistleblow and point their finger at the institution. What I'm saying that there is such a pretense of regulation that in reality, the regulators are all just part of the same problem playing church. There's an exception to this. When that exception rises up, there is absolute chaos and bitterness in the, in the faith. Why? Let me... In big corporations and in big government, to try to get somebody who's a stick in the mud, who is trying to enforce the rules, that happens by some, some very, very advanced uh, maneuvers that are used, and, and it's done without a lot of malice. But in religion, in the, na the name of right and wrong and God are imposed. And so when you have a stick in the mud in religion who says, Mormon church, you're wrong, the whole institution comes out and destroys that individual. And, and that's what makes it so sinister is that they destroy them in the name of God, which they don't do in, in corporations and big government. They just destroy them in the name of, of what is. You want some examples? The Second Advent Church of the Wonderful Divine down the road has a quarterly board meeting, and one of the board members has been doing a self-study on the word tithe. And the pastor and the board have for 75 years been staunch tithe preachers, but at one of their meetings, one of these regulators on the board who actually thinks he's doing something raises his hand and says, I think there's a problem. It's unfounded for us to, to preach tithes. And so he brings it up in the board meeting. The rest of the board toes the party line, just like the regulators of the SNL towed the party line, protect, you know, protected the SNL, let them continue to do their diabolical stuff. And this one brave soul, though, in the church, he's not going to be moved. I mean, he's read and studied the Word of God. He knows what it says about tithing. And no matter what everyone else is saying, he realizes something must be done. And so as the debate goes on, his concerns are squashed, and the Church of the Divine, of the Wonderful, whatever, continues to go. But the regulator, he's not going to be bought. And so the regulator says, uh, raises his hand publicly there in the service. When the pastor says, let's collect the tithes and offerings. And he says, I just want to say, pastor, I don't think you're doing this right. I tried to talk to you about at the board meeting. I tried to bring it up to you, but you guys won't listen to me. Well, then guess what happens? You know what happens. Mr. Busybody... Mr. Doesn't Have the Spirit, I Wonder If He's Saved, Mr. Troublemaker, Mr. Heretic, is driven out in the name of God. And this regulator who will not be run is driven away. That's the in-house mentality of organized religion. And it's in every one. Uh, so listen really closely here. It's the naysayers in the history of religion. It's those who have challenged the status quo. Those who have stood up from the regulation committee and said something's not right 
It has never been the majority that have caused the truth to prevail. And if that's forgotten, we allow the regulators and the people playing church to continue to govern. In the faith, the true regulators are those who are driven out of town. In the faith, the Isaiahs and the Davids who, ha who ran around hiding and had to pretend he was insane and had his own son turn on him. The Jeremiah's, the John the Baptist, the Jesus, the Paul's, the Martin Luther's. It's those who stood up and said, this is baloney that have caused the real regulation to occur. It's not the groups, the insular groups of the masses. So in the faith, in the body, those who have the best input and the best wisdom automatically are kept out of having any influence. And this is how the few are able to maintain control of the many by labeling those who challenge their ways as heretical, not saved, off their rocker, and it happens just like that. You're pushed right out if you're in a group and you are a dissident. That's sinister because it's all in the name of God. The only way to eradicate this, stay with me and we're done, in the body, in the faith, we don't have to agree with naysayers or critics, but always allow and invite their dissenting voice to always freely be heard and spoken and to then have them treated with more love within the group, not less, uh, in spite of their dissenting voice. That way the body thrives. For the outsiders with different views to not just remain, but also let them teach, let them pray, let their opinion be known. This, until this happens, until it happens, the worst examples of owning regulators is not found in big business or in, in, in banking or, or government. It's found in the church. With that, let's go to Martha in Crestview, Florida on line one. Martha, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello, uh, Sean. Sean? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, my question is, uh, this is Martha. I'm down here in Crestview. Um, and uh, my question is, um, we have Mormons down here in Florida as well. Uh, I, am, I am a bit concerned about that. What is the most important thing I should say when they ask me what my beliefs are? Um, should it be we're saved by grace and not the temple building? Um, I'm, I'm really amazed at, at all that temple building going on. I, I think they even built one in Haiti and yeah. places I never thought I would ever see that happen. I think even Baton Rouge has one. I'm really concerned about those temples. Mormonism <laughs> is a dangerous cult. <laughs> yes, it is. And it's, it, it, you know, it's funny. They just announced five new temples at the recent general conference. Oh. Oh, and, no. and, and, and every time they build those things, you know, it's just mm -hmm. like a PR campaign. But let me tell you, Martha, uh, mm -hmm. one thing that comes to my mind right away is go online and, and look up Adams Road. Okay, Adams Road. Adams Road. They're in Florida. And okay. those boys, they all kind of came around when one of them, Micah, 
he yeah. was on his mission and a yeah. pastor, a preacher, just shared with him the message of the gospel in peace, in love, in kindness. And that caused Micah to share it with his family and his brothers. And, and this whole group now are all former Mormons. They're all sold out for the Lord. And it's all because somebody like you was concerned about the Mormon faith in the life of Micah and shared the truth with him in love. Um, uh, that's, um, I'm, you know, that's what's so hard for me, Sean, because, you know, I'm one of those persons, you know, I, I hate it if people think I'm stupid, so I'm going to, you know, go the other route and try to be right all the time. You know, oh, I'm so right. And I, I know I've got to remember it's got to be in love. Yeah. And that that is difficult for me. But I, I guess you're right. I guess I'd have to do that. That's the only way that's going to work. But yeah. um, because what happens? These Mormons, they scare me. Well, don't let them scare you. There's there's no fear. There's no fear in love. You have nothing to fear. Good. Greater is He that is in you that is in the world, and they are of the world. Sister, True. you hey, you have. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, amen, brother. I'm agreeing with you. Oh, I, I didn't think of that, but you're right. You're right. As, as long as you got love, you don't have to fear. And um, this Mormonism, someday it's going to collapse upon itself. But I just, it, it really, it bothers me, all the little children that are going to get hurt. And that when y'all were talking about the suicide tonight, I was thinking about the suicides in Utah today. And uh, that that's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, these people are just hurting and Sometimes I think Mormon hierarchy, I, I hate to think this, but I think sometimes once the door's shut, they actually laugh at those members that give them all that money. I think some of the leadership may be laughing at some of the underlings. And I mean, like, and doing it like really, really, um, like, like they really, like the leaders think that this is all really funny. I wouldn't put you know, it past them. That's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It sounds like you have a great love for LDS people and people in bondage, Martha. So keep praying and really what seriously, you're going to have your greatest effect. The more you're like Jesus, long-suffering, fruit of the Spirit, plant yeah. seeds. Let the fools on the Internet like me do the dirty work of yelling and okay. screaming and bringing out the facts. You be Jesus to them. I'll, I'll try. I'll try to be more loving because I, I guess it's going to take that. Oh, by the way, I plan on getting your uh, latest book. Well, just stay on the line, and we'll send it to you if you give us an address. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, all right. And uh, yes, and thanks for all the hard work you do. Tell tell Wendy uh, which uh, your address and, and which book you want, and then also okay. talk slowly because by this time of the night, she's usually thrown a few back. And so it takes her a little longer. <laughs> oh, my word. Y'all really are ex-Mormons. Oh, we, we are, sister. We are. <laughs> Love you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's a knife to a gunfight. Knife to a gunfight. Hang on, and, and Wendy will help you. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Oh, don't you love the salt of the earth like that? You're getting applause, Martha. We love y'all. We, you know, you, you people out there, you salt of the earth. You got hearts like that. You just want to do so much for, for uh, the Lord. You want to stop the travesties. You want to stop the pain. 
uh, I, I just admire you so much. I'm so grateful to be part of the body with you and praise Jesus along with you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going. This man's awake.